You're listening to Comedy Central. April 16, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Tonight is an amazing journalist from CBS News and the author of the new book, Future Face. Alex Wagner is joining us, everybody. <laughs> but first, but first, uh, blasting off just got a whole new meaning. Listen to this. NASA scientists are researching the behavior of sperm in space. They sent samples aboard the Falcon 9 rocket last week. Scientists want to know whether humans would be able to reproduce in microgravity. Wow, NASA is experimenting with space sperm. That's one small step for man, one giant load of mankind. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we finally got to the bottom of what those ink blotches were in Arrival. <laughs> yeah, those aliens were literally coming in peace. That's all they were doing. They were communicating with us. And, and now NASA says that this is the first sperm in space, right? And I bet every dude astronaut is like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, first, yeah, come on. Man. Men have been in space for almost 60 years now. There's no ways in hell this is the first space sperm. <laughs> you put a dude in a hotel room, within five minutes, he's jacked off twice. <laughs> you know these guys are in the space station. As soon as they got there, they're just like, oh, Honestly, I think NASA needs to slow its roll. Because I don't know if you've realized this. Just consider how all of this looks if you're an alien. First, humans send up telescopes to creepily watch them from afar, right? And then we sent up mixtapes. And then we sent up nudes. And now we're sending sperm. <laughs> like, at this point, it just feels like we're sexually harassing aliens. That's what it feels like. I wouldn't be surprised if our first contact was the aliens coming down and just saying, like, hey, take a hint. We're not interested. <laughs> Hashtag me too, hashtag Glorbzard. This <laughs> is like, stop sending this stuff. And now, oh, and now, uh, speaking of news that's out of this world, uh, it came out last week that Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, who is now in deep federal investigation shit, only had three clients in the past year. Right. The president, who Cohen helped to pay off a porn star that he had an affair with. Uh, his second client, a major GOP fundraiser named Elliot Broidy, who Cohen also helped to pay off a playmate that he had an affair with. Right. And then Michael Cohen, Cohen had one more client. Right. Out of seven billion people, seven billion people, who could have wanted to join this club <laughs> and use Michael Cohen as a lawyer last year? Only one other person did. And this person's identity was a complete mystery. Until today. This is CNN Breaking News. We are now getting word the lawyer for the president, Michael Cohen, has just disclosed in court that the client who had requested to remain unnamed was Sean Hannity of Fox News. Thank you. Yeah, it turns out Michael Cohen's secret client was Sean Hannity, which, I'm sorry, is not a good look. 
You know, right now, Sean Hannity's probably on the phone with his wife, like, hey, honey, it's so weird how I use the guy who pays off mistresses to get me out of that parking ticket. <laughs> it's funny, right? Hello? 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 Just think about how, uh, how unethical this is for a moment, right? Hannity has been reporting on this Michael Cohen story from the beginning, from the beginning, but he conveniently never mentioned that Cohen was his guy, which even for Sean Hannity is pretty shady. I mean, even Instagram models have higher ethical standards because they'll be like, drink tummy tea. By the way, I'm sponsored by tummy tea. They tell you what it is, right? And I'm not expecting him to aspire to the levels of the Kardashians, but come on, Sean. And I'll tell you what else, I'll tell you what else. Once you know that Hannity has personal skin in the game, uh, like with Cohen, it's fun to go back and look at everything he said about the FBI raid because now we can see that Hannity wasn't just mad, he was scared. President Trump's longtime personal attorney, Michael Cohn, just had his office, his home, and his hotel that he was staying in raided by the FBI today. This is an unprecedented abuse of power. Cohn's payment is a perfectly legitimate business move. Mueller's witch hunt investigation is now a runaway train careening off the track, spinning out of control. If you voted for Donald Trump, you better get buckled up because this is going to be a rough ride. You know, now that we know he was working with Cohen, that looks less like a new show and more like a guy really stressed giving himself a pep talk. It's just like, come on, <laughs> we gotta get buckled up. This is gonna be a rough ride. Hoo-ha! <laughs> well, let's move on. Let's move on. You know, on a normal weekend, America and its allies launching 105 missiles into Syria would be the only news that everyone would be talking about. But there are no more normal weekends. So instead, the story dominating the headlines was ex-FBI director James Comey's new book, A Higher Loyalty, the most hotly anticipated book since the sequel to Everyone Poops. Everyone Poops <laughs> 2. Yeah. It turns out some people don't poop. So to promote the book, last night Comey sat down with America's most respected leprechaun, George Stephanopoulos, <laughs> in a primetime interview as well. And Comey said all the things that we already know about Donald Trump. You know, he said he's immoral, he said he's a liar, he said he mistreats women. It's all the stuff that got Trump elected. But what did raise an eyebrow was when Comey revealed how he told Trump about the PP tape. I'm about to meet with a person who doesn't know me, has just been elected president of the United States, and I'm about to talk to him about allegations that he was involved with prostitutes in Moscow. I did not go into the business about um, people peeing on each other. And he interrupted, started talking about it. You know, do I look like a guy who needs hookers? I didn't answer that, and then I just moved on. No, no, no. No, President Trump, of course you don't look like a guy who needs hookers. You look like a guy who chooses hookers. Totally different. <laughs> totally different. Now, the reason Comey says he wrote this book is that, as the title suggests, he believes that as a lawman, it's his duty to share the unbiased truth with America. And throughout the interview, he reminded us how noble he is. I actually thought, as bad as this will be for me personally, this is my obligation to protect the FBI and the Justice Department. I was trying to be honest and clear with the American people. It really was the right thing to do. And if I wasn't honest about that, how am I achieving the goal of showing the American people this is your justice system working in the right way? I'm not trying to help a candidate or hurt a candidate. I'm trying to do the right thing. Trying to make decisions with an eye, not on politics, but on those higher values. Wow. This dude is so loyal to America that when he dies, he's just gonna turn into a bald eagle <laughs> and fly majestically into an apple pie. <laughs> so powerful. Like, 
He really means it, guys, because even when Comey got surprise fired, he didn't think about himself. All he thought about was USA. Stunned by the news, Comey heads to the airport. It would be his last flight on the FBI jet. So you're in that private jet, basically alone? What did you do? I drank red wine from a paper coffee cup and just looked out at the lights of the country I love so much as we flew home. You hear that? You hear that? Flying home in that private jet after being fired and the only thing that Comey could think about was how much he loves this country. Yeah, in that private jet, feeling that. You realize that combination of bawling and emotion is something you usually only find in a Drake song. <laughs> it literally sounds like the lyrics of it. it. Sounds like something Drake would say. It's like, sipping on this wine, country on my mind, thinking about the time when the president was lying. <laughs> it feels like a Drake song. Now look, now look, here's the thing. I know how Comey is trying to present himself, okay? But it's hard for us to believe that this is a selfless, unbiased expose written for the people and for the benefit of the people when you're also throwing grade school shade like this. It was the first time you met Donald Trump. What was your impression? He had impressively coiffed hair that looks to be all his. I confess I stared at it pretty closely and my reaction was, must take a heck of a lot of time in the morning. His tie was too long as it always is. He looked slightly orange up close with small white um, half moons under his eyes, which I assume are from tanning goggles. You see now, that's funny, but that doesn't sound like an impartial lawman. That sounds like a guy who got fired from White Castle talking trash about his old boss. That's what it sounds like. It's like, man, that dude smelled like onions before he got to work. <laughs> And look, don't get me wrong, I'm the last person to tell anyone not to trash Trump, okay? But I do think that being petty hurts Comey's credibility. Like, you can't take the high road and the low road at the same time. Because let's be honest, Comey knew that roasting Trump would help him sell books, okay? And if you're trying to make money, then just make the money. Don't act like you're doing it for our sake. You know, basically, Comey, he's like hiding the money aspect of this whole thing. It's almost like if Braveheart was like, we must not give in to tyranny. We must fight against oppression. And we must do it with the swords we buy on BraveheartWeaponsDepot.com. <laughs> I promise you this war has nothing to do with me getting rich. It's about a higher loyalty. <laughs> by the way, use my promo code, super brave, super brave. Now charge! We'll be right back. Show. My guest tonight is the co-host of Showtime's The Circus, uh, contributor to the CBS News and The Atlantic, and an author of the new book, Future Face, A Family Mystery, An Epic Quest, and The Secret to Belonging. Please welcome Alex Wagner. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, my friend. Doing so many things and finally writing your book, Future Face. Uh, this is one of those stories where I felt like I was biased because I connected with it a lot as a mixed race person. Yeah. There's always an interesting story that you tell yourself about your history. Yep. There's always an interesting story in discovering where you come from. Mm -hmm. Future Face is really about that, but where do you get the title from? In 1993, when I was very, very young, uh, there was a Time Magazine cover heralding the new face of America. Right. It was this composite image of all the different races that would be dominant in the years hence. And it kind of looked like me. So I said to myself, 
I'm future face. I am the face of America. I am an avatar of the future brought to the present right. to show you Americans what your future will look like. I feel like a lot of people have said that and thought that they go like, in the future, you know, we're all gonna look like this. And then Trump came and he was like, nah. -uh. <laughs> pause. Yeah, just pause yeah, on that. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 but that idea is something that has stretched from that time. People yeah. go like, this is what it's gonna be. But what a lot of people don't realize is these mixed identities come with so many stories attached to them. You trace your family history mm -hmm. in this book, and it takes you down like a really scary path. Like, what is, what is your mix and what do you discover? So my mom is an immigrant from Rangoon, Burma, and my dad was born in a tiny town in Northeast Iowa called Lansing. Right. And they had sort of, I had this idea about who I was, but really my identity was more about Garfield and Chips Ahoy and Sebago boat shoes than it was about any particular axis of my identity. Um, and, and that was nice, I think, yeah. but that wasn't real. You know, there was not a lot to hold on to. And at a certain point, I began to feel the weightlessness of that. And I wanted to know more about who I was and where my community was, which is, I think, something a lot of mixed race kids want right. to know and a lot of Americans want to know, especially right now. Um, and I began to unwind these family stories and realize what my family had been telling itself about where we'd come from was filled with obfuscations and half-truths and, in some cases, lies. Right. Um, and that we'd been covering up some pretty ugly parts of our own histories. Um, so this is my attempt at finding the ugly parts, putting some sunlight on them. Right. But also coming to a place about, like, what does it mean to be an American uh -huh. today and what sacrifices are made along the way. When, when, you, were, when you were researching your history, you, you discover this information about your family. As everyone sort of knows the story of Burma. Yeah. And, and people go like, oh, Burma is the darling, and Burma, these are the people who were oppressed. And then you, you discover another side of your own people's history. It must be difficult to accept that there's a piece of the story that isn't as romantic as you would like it to be, though. I doubt, not even just not romantic, but bad. Right. I mean, I think especially for brown people, right, there's this idea that brown immigrants come to America and immediately become the sort of virtuous newcomers, and that all the bad things about America exist in the present day, and that right. there weren't bad things that happened back home. And what I realized is a lot of the sort of tribalism and nationalism that plague modern-day American politics we're a huge part of Burma's past, and we're seeing the sort of harvest of that right now with the genocide of the Rohingya Muslim minority in Burma. Right. Um, and what I realized is that, you know, my people in Burma could have been the ones wearing the, like, make Burma great again trucker hats. <laughs> and, and that's not something you think of as a person that is half brown, right? That right. the brown side might have been just as sort of ethnically nationalist as the white side. It, it is a difficult thing to interrogate, and it's a story that seems to repeat itself in America, because you have many Americans struggling with the narrative of their past because it feels like they're being indicted for what their forefathers did. So you see it with uh, the, the, the monuments, you see it with the South and the argument about the Confederate flag. People go, no, it, it was only about the good. Do you think that in many ways Americans like to romanticize or, or lie to themselves about the true story of their origins? Uh, yes, I mean, it's called the white immigrant origin story and it is a lie. I mean, that... In what way? <laughs> well, my dad had this story. My dad was an avowed Democrat, progressive liberal, right? But he had, they had this idea that 
you know, we just came to Iowa and we harvested God's bounty and how great that was. But actually, when you dig into it, there's a reason there weren't people of color in the town that my dad grew up in, because they had either kicked all of them off the land or didn't allow them up from the south to claim the land when it was open to everybody else. Right. Um, but those stories about American history rarely dovetail with our own personal histories. And that's what this book is about. It's about taking the sort of American narrative and refashioning it with some truth. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating journey that you go on discovering about yourself, about your family. And I feel like that's, that's, that's served you well because you do everything everywhere. I mean, I know you from CBS. We know you from writing <laughs> at The Atlantic. You're now working on The Circus. I am. And, and it's your most, a circus. Your most recent trip you took was to Russia. Like, when everyone was like, oh, it's about to be a war, you're like, yeah, I'm going there. Yeah. Well, you know, when people are like, everyone's leaving, I'm like, I'm coming. <laughs> uh, we went to Moscow, and we basically went through the looking glass. Like, I, we saw Rush, the Russian propaganda apparatus at its heart. Right. Spoke with the Kremlin spokespeople, foreign ministry spokespeople, the head of RT, Russians on the street. It is a parallel universe over there. And in, in, in what way? Um, the, the denial of basic facts, which is something we can understand here right. in America, um, from a, coming from a different place, uh, and, and also the, the sort of resoluteness that, that the truth that is being sort of sent out on Russian airwaves is the only truth. And when you speak to these people about that, when you speak to young Russians who you would think are connected and worldly, they believe this information wholeheartedly. That what's happening to young Russians is something different. I think there's an older generation that doesn't sort of believe in America and still harbors a lot of the same Cold War animosity. Right. The younger generation is much more apathetic. They've been taught that everything's corrupted. America's elections wow. are co corrupted. Russia's elections are corrupted. American media is corrupted. Russian media is corrupted. And so there's this really dark apathy that set in that is really disheartening. When you, when you speak to them, is there a fear that that kind of attitude could come through to America? I mean, sure. If we don't have more Trevor Noahs in the world. Oh, shucks. Like, oh, keeping shucks. us woke. Oh, shucks. No, but, you know, actually, like, I mean, I think humor and analysis is also what keeps us alive in a way. Right. And I didn't see a lot of that over there. Now, we didn't spend an, an infinite amount of time over there, but, I mean, I think satire and conversation and... Um, Dialogue. I mean, right. this is what keeps our democracy alive. And that's the thing that I, you know, that I, I sort of lean on in, in the dark times, the end of days that we seem to be fast approaching. Right. Um, I, I like it, how you said that so easily, the dark days. <laughs> you know, the, just the darkness <laughs> the of the end of days. Fast approaching. No big deal. <laughs> um, but, you know, our, we're still alive. We still got a heartbeat. We're still alive. We've still got a heartbeat. Thank you so much for joining Thank me on the show. Friend. This is a fascinating book. Future Face will be available April 17th. You can pre-order it now. The Circus airs Sundays at 8 p.m. on Showtime. Alex Wagner, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.